0: If you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Psalms. We've kind of said we're going to have the summer in Psalms, and so we've been going through different Psalms, and obviously if you've read much of them, they're actually songs. They were a huge part of Jewish culture where you were really, um, they would remember these. They would memorize them, and the 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 Psalms were hugely important to them. They would sing them, and and so... There were many different types of psalms there were psalms of praise, psalms of wisdom, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, and royal psalms and then some are kind of a blend of psalm of, of multiple of those and If you were here last week, um, Luke preached and he talked about psalm thirty two which is really all about confession and the importance of confession, confessing our sins to the Lord, and then um, really it 's kind of coming clean before God and We have this thing that we do here, which is called we don't plan well. And uh, I didn't. I knew that that's what Luke was going to preach on, and then I knew that my next sermon would be Psalm 51. And but I thought it might be a little bit, a little bit of ways from today. And it turns out it's today. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are perfectly lined up to be back to back. And the reason why, if you don't know this, um, much of the Bible is not written chronologically. The Psalms are not written chronologically, and so one of the best ways to really understand what's going on when a Psalm is written is to get a chronological Bible reading plan, and you can see like, oh, this is all the stuff that's going on when this is written, and Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are written back to back, and they're written back to back in a time that is probably one of the most known parts of the Bible and definitely the most infamous moment in the life of King David. If you know much about the Bible, um, there was a period of time where God allowed there to be kings, and there was a king by the name of Saul. He was a king over a nation of Israel, and Saul was, started out to be looking pretty good, but it quickly turned. He went his own way, and God said he was going to identify a new king, and that King David would be the king eventually, but he was not yet the king. And when he wasn't quite yet the king, but going to be the king, that's when David and Goliath happened. And and David slays Goliath and he becomes the music player for Saul. He gets married to Saul's daughter and his best friend Jonathan is Saul's son. And everything seems to be going super awesome in the life of David. His future seems good. His present seems good. And then Saul gets a little bit jealous over the fact that all the people love David and not himself, who's king, Saul. And so he decides to try to kill David. He Multiple occasions tries to kill David. David has to go into hiding. He's living in a cave. Not ideal. Um, Your father-in-law out to kill you, living in a cave. And things get really bad. Well, they continue to get bad, so much so that the Philistines come in. They kill the king, King Saul. They kill Jonathan, David's best friend. And things are kind of at an all-time low for David. Well, then David becomes king. And God blesses David so much, things go so well, they have new territory, there's victory at every turn, and things are great. And then, 2 Samuel chapter 11 happens, and it says this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle. So it's spring, kings are about to go out to battle, but David doesn't. He doesn't go out to battle. And I don't know about you, but I, I have learned that rest is a very important thing. But there's a distinguish between rest and a major break. And David doesn't just have a rest. It's like he, he decides, I deserve a break. I deserve a reward. And he slowly, I think, begins to take, take his eyes off of the Lord, slowly to start, And then it continues on and on and on. And I've said before that I think oftentimes our biggest temptations come after our biggest victories. And it's like that for David David has all these victories, everything's going great. And then he's tempted. I think maybe he's too busy celebrating to realize how close to the edge he had gotten. Have you ever been there? Where things seem to be going good, and so you're kind of celebrating, but you don't realize just how close to the edge you have gotten. I think that's where David is, and I think the enemy oftentimes tempts us at night, tempts us when we're alone, when we're tired, and the Bible teaches us that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And David, celebrating, doesn't realize how close to the edge he's gotten. It reminds me of Proverbs 28 Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked and his ways will suddenly fall. I think David had gotten into a dangerous position without even realizing it, and he's just hanging out with nothing to do, which again, oftentimes is when we are tempted the most. He's hanging out, nothing to do. I think he's gotten comfortable. He's gotten a little bit lazy, and he's chilling out, and he looks over from the the palace, from the kingdom, right, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, on her rooftop bathing, And he thinks, she looks good. So he continues to watch. And then he kind of takes another step. And he decides, not only does she look good, but I'm going to send for her, and I'm going to see if she'll come over. So he sends for her, and she comes over. And so often we talk about the fall of David. We don't really talk about the fall of Bathsheba. But Bathsheba went to his house. And so there we are. We have David. He's just chilling out at home. He's not at war. He sent all of his army out to war, and he's just hanging out at home. And he sees Bathsheba, and her husband is off to war. Her husband is one of the, um, one of the members of the military, and there he's sent out. And David sends for Bathsheba. She comes to his house, and they sleep together. And then a little while later, she comes and she tells David, "I'm pregnant." And at this point in time, if you've ever read through this, you're starting to think, am I reading the Bible? or Am I watching a soap opera? Like, it's just pretty intense. This king, this man who is going to be after God's own heart, he sees Bathsheba, has her come to her house, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And you realize that we have a huge problem. Problem number one, in this culture, if you commit adultery, you are to be stoned to death. So for Bathsheba, Her punishment for having done this is that people would take rocks and throw them at her until she died. So her life is in danger because of the choices that she has made. But problem number two, how bad will it look for King David if he gets all of his warriors, all of his military, sends them off, and then he's sleeping with their wives? It's probably not going to go well. I mean, I think civil war breaks out. How many people are going to want to fight for the nation of a king who's doing this? So we have a huge problem, a problem for Bathsheba, a problem for David. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there's a problem like this, but you're faced with two choices. Do I confess it or do I cover it up? Have you ever been in that situation? Do I confess this or do I cover it up? Well, I think that David feels like he has no choice and he has to cover it up. He has to cover it up because Bathsheba could be killed. He could be removed as king. All these victories, all this territory is at huge risk. And so he justifies to himself that he needs to cover this up. And so he takes yet another step. And he says, how can I cover this up? I know what I'll do. I'll bring Uriah, her husband, home, and I'll get him to sleep with his wife. And when he sleeps with his wife, it can be like, look, she's pregnant with his baby, not my baby. Everything's good. Nobody has to know. So they bring Uriah home and Uriah comes home and he's so loyal to the army, so loyal to King David that he won't go and enjoy a night with his wife because he feels too guilty because all of these other people are out fighting for the nation. And so he's like, no, I am gonna. I need to fight for the nation. Like, let me go back. And so David's kind of like, crap. That's not what the translation says, but I think that's what he's thinking. And he decides, okay, what am I going to do now? And so he decides to take yet another step in this cover-up. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get Uriah drunk. Because if nothing can fix this, you know, some, put on a bunch of booze on here, this will fix it, right? And so he gets Uriah drunk and thinks if Uriah gets drunk, then maybe we'll put him outside his wife's house. He's just going to go right in. Boom, problem solved. Doesn't work. Again, Uriah is so loyal to David and so loyal to the nation and so loyal to God that he does not want to do that. He feels like he's supposed to be fighting and battling for the nation and so he doesn't. And at this point in time, David says, there's only one option left. And that's that Uriah must die. If Uriah dies, you bury him, you bury the truth. And he kind of decides, you know what? I don't have a choice. No one needs to know. But Uriah will be moved to the front lines where he will be killed. So, again, I don't know if you've been in a situation like this where you're faced with the choice, do I confess or do I cover it up? But when you're in that situation, when you think there's something that's going on in your life that you want no one to know about, when you're in that situation, you are in a very dangerous situation spot where your decisions aren't really well considered and so what happens is you're backed into a corner you feel desperate and so whenever you're trying to keep something secret what happens is you will immediately leave details out you'll confess parts like you'll give up the pawn to keep the queen and so when you're trying to keep something secret you will automatically begin to lie the second thing that begins to happen is when you're in the midst of this cover-up is your integrity is out the window. Self-protection becomes the number one thing in your life. You got to go your way to keep your reputation, to keep your situation the way that you want it to be. And what happens is you become wise in your own eyes. It reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. It reminds me of Proverbs 26, 12 that says that there is more hope for a fool than one who is wise in their own eyes. But you have David who is wise in his own eyes. He's trying to live in secrecy. He's living in the midst of this cover-up. And I think that he doesn't realize something, that whether you cover up the sin or whether you confess the sin, there are consequences either way. And the enemy does such a good job that when we're in the midst of this and we're wanting to keep something secret, something in our life hidden, we, we, we hear these lies and we believe these lies that, it, that if no one knows, it's okay. We won't have any um, consequences and that's simply not true. And so David goes to tremendous efforts to cover up his sins. And as I said before, where there's secrecy, there is always danger. So David as I said, sends Uriah to the front lines where he's killed. And then once he has died, he marries Bathsheba. And it seems like a perfect cover. His reputation is intact. He doesn't look like the villain who had his military off to war so he could sleep with their wives. Now he looks like the king who is so great and so sweet that even though this man died on the war, that he's going to take care of his wife. He's going to marry her to take care of her. He keeps his reputation. Looks like a successful cover-up, but one of the things that I've found in my own life from even times where I've wanted things to be hidden, there's no such thing as a good cover-up. The reason is because God always knows. And not only does God always know, I think that God always reveals it to others. And that's the craziest part to me because so many times there are people who you, you can feel like something in your life is hidden, but it almost never is hidden. It's never hidden from the Lord, but from other people it's almost never hidden. there are times when people, especially who have, uh, we'll talk about this at a different time, but who have a gift of prophecy, they just sense that something is not right. They might not know exactly what it is, but they might be like, there's this person, I know that something is off in their life. I know that there's something going on that they're not wanting to let out. And they got this secret that is just eating them alive. You can almost always see it, and it's the same here. David thinks his cover-up is great. He's living in that self-protection mode. He's living in survival mode. He's buried all those feelings of guilt and shame that are actually good feelings. He's buried those so deep But God knows, and God reveals it to a man by the name of Nathan. And Nathan comes to David. Nathan is a prophet. He's a trusted friend. And he comes to confront David. He comes to hold him accountable. And at this point in time, if you've ever been in a situation where you've tried to keep something secret and you didn't want to let the cat out of the bag, I've been there. And what happens is, you really don't want the people to hold you accountable. You really don't want the people to confront you. And so what you often see, and I've seen this a lot over 20 years of walking with the Lord, where someone falls into some sort of sin or some sort of habit of sin, and they don't want anybody to know, and they don't want anybody to confront them on it. And so what they do is they start to push people away. What they do is they start to um, surround themselves with people who will only tell them what they want to hear and they'll just drown out all those other voices. What happens is they make a bad choice, they're filled with shame, and they decide to go into hiding. And once they're in hiding, they begin to continue to isolate themselves more and more and more and more. I have seen it many times. Another thing that can happen is, rather than isolating themselves, they can put on this just mask that's total, total lies and masquerade around as if they're something that they're not. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Ecclesiastes 4 talks about that if someone falls and and he doesn't have anybody to help him up, it's like pity for that man. And David has this man who comes and confronts him But then I also was thinking of Ecclesiastes 4.13. It says, better is a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. But Nathan comes and he confronts David and David listens. My guess is that David thinks that no one knows that is perfect cover up has happened, but God knows and Nathan knows. And so Nathan tells him this story. Nathan comes to King David and he says, Okay, David, there's two men. One of them is really, really rich. He's got tons of sheep, tons of lambs. One guy's super poor. He's got one lamb, but it's not like for food, it's like his pet. He loves this lamb. He takes care of it, he brushes it. This is like his favorite thing in the entire world. And the rich man decides, I'm hungry. I'm going to take the poor man's lamb, kill it, cook it, and eat it. And Nathan tells David this story as if it was something that had actually happened in the kingdom. And David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him and says, that man is you. And in an instant, David realizes the gravity of his sin. Have you ever been there? I for sure have. And in a moment, David realizes the weight of his sin. His sin and the wrong that he's committed comes crashing down on him. His eyes are open. The blinders are removed. That guilt and shame is boom. The regret, it's filled him. It reminded me of this story, and I promise you I am going to get to Psalm 51. And once I do, it's going to move real quick. But to get there, it's going to take a little bit. I know this pastor from Tennessee, and he, we were talking about ministry and how ministry can just be really hard. And, and we were talking about the hardest things we've seen in ministry, and I thought I had trumped him, and then he threw this out there, and I had realized I just needed to be quiet. He said, we had this situation in our church. There was a husband and wife, and the wife died. And it was really strange, because no one would have thought anything crazy could have happened, um, but the husband was one of the suspects. They realized that they thought it was a homicide, that, and they, were, they, were, they suspected that it's possible that the husband could have done it. And he said, Brian, I knew this guy. There's no way. There's no way. But the family thought maybe it was him, and so he couldn't go to the funeral. He wasn't around for any of it. He, he lost his wife, and he was unable to be close through any of that whole scenario, plus the police are looking into him, and the pastor just said he felt so, so, um, so like, just, he needed to be there for this guy. And so he was there for him, kind of walked him through this, like the loss of his wife not being able to be there for it, plus the police think it could have been you, and just how crazy this would have been, and he said, you know, I walked along with him for quite some time, and he just seemed like a man that was grieving, and a man that, um, was broken over the thought that someone would think that he would possibly have done this. And he said that about a month after she had died, she had already been buried, and he called me and he said, can you take me to the gravesite so I can pay my respects? And the pastor says, sure, I'll do that. So he takes him to the gravesite. And he said to start with, it was just him crying over losing his spouse. And he said, Brian, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life it flipped in an instant. And he started vomiting everywhere. And he looked over at me and he said, I did it. In an instant, it came crashing down the weight of his sin. That is where David is when he writes this song. The weight of it has overwhelmed him. That David is like, I not just looked at her lustfully. I then committed adultery and I didn't just do that. Then I tried to get this guy drunk to cover it up and that didn't work and so I made sure that this man would be killed. And then David writes Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, you can flip open. I'm going to stop in verse 17, but this is what Psalm 51 says when David is overwhelmed with the gravity of the situation. What he says... Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O oh God. O oh God of my salvation and my tongue and sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Father God, I pray that as we continue in your word that you will teach us profoundly. That you will penetrate our hearts, that you will, as we know your word says, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I pray that you would do all of those things in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. David um, starts off with confession. Like we said, we talked about confession last week. He, He takes responsibility for what he did. He basically says, yep, I did it. He says... Um, I did it, and, and, and Lord, give me mercy. We said this last week, or a couple weeks ago, but mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. So what David is saying is, I deserve punishment for what I have done, God, I'm asking you that you not give me what I deserve. He's he's asking for mercy. And so when you, when you see like confession happens, but the second part of confession is really repentance. And what we see in this is repentance, where he's asking for mercy. He's taking responsibility for what he did. He's not justifying it. He's not minimizing it. He's not blaming someone else. And last week when Luke was talking about confession, he talked about how easy it is to not take full responsibility for it and to be like, well, yeah, I did that. But the reason, like he's not saying, David, not saying yes I did this but you know Bathsheba it was really her fault because she looks good and she was on her rooftop it was her fault he's not doing any of that he's saying I have done wrong he's not justifying he's not minimizing he's not shifting he's confessing he's accepting it and he's laying down before the Lord it reminds me of our dog so our dog um, she hasn't done this in a while but occasionally she'll get on furniture she's not supposed to get on, she'll, she'll chew on something she's not supposed to chew on, and almost every single time when that happens, when we come home, Tristan, what happens? Muggsy is just, she is just laying down shaking, like, oh no, I'm in trouble, and it, she's got an innocent face, Shane said. She realizes that she is in big trouble, She just knows it. And what you see with David is he realizes what he has done, he knows he's in trouble, and he lays bare before the Lord. That is the start of repentance, is laying bare before God. The next thing that you see that David does is he acknowledges God's position. He basically says, God, look, you are justified. You are the judge. I have wronged you. If you want to punish me, you are totally okay in doing that. He acknowledges God's position, but he also says, God, um, you are loving and you are gracious. Against you only have I sinned. I think Uriah, Uriah might disagree, but <laughs> against you only I have sinned. And the next thing that you see that he does is he acknowledges what he's done, but something else is odd to me. Not one place in this psalm does he say, God, I, I looked lustfully. Not one time did he say, God, I I committed adultery. Not one time did he say, God, I I, uh, conspired to commit murder. And I find it very interesting. But I think that we see something really profound in it is God cares more about our heart than our actions. And what you see David say is, I am a sinner from birth. He's not saying I have committed sin. He's saying there's something deeper than me just committing sin. It wasn't just an action that I took. There's something in here that wanted to do all of those things. He says, God, I am continually sinning. God, I am dirty. I am filthy. I am stained to the core. My heart is not clean. I am guilty. Have you ever been there? I think if you have been a Christian, a follower of Christ for very long and you do not feel more and more evil than you did the day you first accepted him, then I think that you you've missed something. Paul, who is like who wrote like half of the New Testament, who we would like kind of in a way almost idolize and talk about how great he was, he called himself the worst of sinners. David doesn't just acknowledge what he has done. He acknowledges that there's a deeper problem and it's his heart. He acknowledges that the deeper problem is not what he's done. The deeper problem is who he is. He realizes he is a sinner. Repentance starts with asking for mercy, with realizing who God is, but it also acknowledging the full extent of what you're capable of. There was a guy I knew who, when he would meet with someone to disciple them, he'd be like, look, you can always be honest and real with me because I promise you there's not a sin that you have committed that I haven't either committed or thought about committing. It doesn't matter what you confess to me. Now, it also could be that maybe I haven't committed it or thought about committing it, but maybe if my life circumstances would have looked a lot different, maybe I would have. So he says, you can confess anything to me. Repentance starts with us realizing how deep, deeply ugly our hearts are. And David is there. And the next thing of repentance, I think you see the true heart of repentance, is David asks for one thing. He asks for the one thing about 50 different ways, but he's really only asking for one thing. Let me tell you about a couple things that he says throughout this psalm. He says, God, do not look on my sin. God, hide your face from my sins. God, don't cast me out. Please wash me, cleanse me, purge me, make me clean. Put me back together again. Remake me. Make me whiter than snow. Take away the dirt, the guilt, the shame. Fix me, renew me, teach me. Turn my guilt and shame to joy and rejoicing. He says, God, please look away from my sin. Don't count it against me. Forgive it and please forget it. He says, God, create in me a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. Give me a new spirit. Take me back. Deliver me. Put me into your presence. Restore to me joy. You see a total change in David. From before, He was all about self-protection, all about self-preservation, all about self-promotion, all about his reputation, and all of that is gone. He no longer is filled with pride, but he's been, been replaced with humility. No longer is he being wise in his own eyes, he is laying down, fearing the Lord. That is the heart of repentance. He cares about one thing, and it's being right with God. Whether I'm king no longer matters. I want to be right with God. Whether I continue in this relationship with Bathsheba doesn't matter, right with God. What my kids think of me doesn't matter, right with God. Have you ever gotten to a place where the only thing that mattered to you was being right with the Lord? That's where David is. That, I think, is the heart of repentance. And in this psalm, you see several things. You see him asking for mercy, acknowledging God's position, acknowledging how evil and deeply uh, terrible his heart is, and then you see him really just wanting one thing. And if you're like me, you read this and you're like, it is absolutely unbelievable to me that God would even consider forgiving this guy. It's unfair that God would forgive this guy. Like, what does Uriah say? (laughs) But here's the thing. There's a huge problem for us. The Bible teaches that if you have looked at someone lustfully, you have committed adultery. You're David. Everybody in here, we're David. Not only does it say that, if we in any way, shape, or form don't let our yes be yes and our no be no, we're lying, we're covering up, we're trying to present something false, we're David. It continues to go on and it says that if you are mad at someone, if you hate someone, you have committed murder, and you and I, what we can do is we can read this and we can be like, man, this guy's supposed to be a guy after God's own heart and he, he commits, he, he, he has an affair, he covers it up and he murders somebody. Man. It's us. It's all of us. I think what we do is what verse 16 talks about. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. David realizes, look, I can't do anything to fix this problem. It's not like I can go and bring Uriah back. It's not like I can go back in time through the DeLorean to get back to the future and fix the situation. He knows he's done. But I think what happens for us is what we often try to do is we feel guilty over the sins that we've committed. And so what we decide is, I'm just going to really work hard and be a good person now old lady needs help across the street, I'm going to help. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure I say my Hail Marys. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to make sure I read my Bible. I'm going to volunteer at least X number of hours a week. I promise I won't say any bad words anymore. I won't watch any more bad shows. I won't, we come up with this thing like we're just going to fix it. But what, is, what David is saying this is sacrifices are not what God delights in. It's not like we can make restitution for it. One of the things that Luke talked about last week that I loved was he talked about restitution. Like, if I were to wrong someone in this place, let's say I went to Marty's house and I stole his TV. The way I can make it right is by giving him the money of the TV, buying him a new TV, or giving him his TV back. I can fix that, right? But when my problem is a problem between me and the Lord for a deeply evil heart, how can I fix that? I can't. There's no way to make restitution for it And the other thing is that this is, God can't just say, okay, I'll just forget about it. It's it's no big deal. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. So Jesus doesn't, God just can't just turn a blind eye to it. There has to be punishment for sin. That's why they used to sacrifice animals. They would take, and and Luke talked about this last week, they'd be a scapegoat. They would, in essence, pretend as if they took their sin, put it on an animal, and they would kill it, and that animal would die for the sins. So you can't make restitution. God just can't forget it. There's punishment that needs to be made. There's punishment that needs to be taken. And so what's so cool about this is David begins to trust in the fact that there would be one coming. Isaiah 53 is, takes place not that long after this, and it's foreshadowing that there would be one who would come who would take away iniquity. See, God doesn't just say to David, okay, I'll just forget your iniquity, but he takes his iniquity and he puts it somewhere else. On the one who came to take the iniquity, one who was a man of sorrows, who was stricken, who was smitten, who was afflicted. The same thing happens for you and for I. Our sins, we don't just, God just doesn't say, oh, okay, I'll just pretend like I don't see those anymore. I'll just forget about them. But he takes our sins and he puts them somewhere else and he puts them on the one who would be crushed for our iniquity. He takes them and he puts them on the one whose chastisement brought us peace. He would put them on the one whose stripes would heal us. He put them on the person of Jesus. David, is not just forgiven, but David's sin is taken, is put on the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus takes the full punishment for it. The same thing happens for us. The heart of repentance as I said, it's understanding that we're guilty. It's asking for mercy. It's acknowledging God is just in his decision to do whatever he wants to do. But it's also us acknowledging how deeply evil our heart is and us wanting one thing and one thing only. But I think it's also one more thing. It's us accepting the payment has been made. And Luke talked about this last week. I thought it was great. He talks about the importance of confession to enter into a relationship with the Lord, but also the importance of confession after you are already in a relationship with the Lord. And it's the same thing with repentance. The only way that we come into a relationship with Jesus is through repentance of us seeing that there's something deeply wrong with us and that's asking Jesus to take it. And that's, that's, that's us receiving grace. But there's this importance for this to continue on. It is easy to still fall into patterns of sin as a believer. Has there ever been a season of your life after you started walking the Lord where you, just, you really struggled in the same way over and over again, you felt like every time I just keep falling, and you feel like what Paul felt like in Romans 7 where he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. True repentance is accepting that the payment has been made. It's paid in full. And if you're like me, you can think, "Yeah, I know that he paid in full, but there's no but." It's been paid. Repentance is us truly understanding that, and understanding it deeper and deeper every day. That this evil heart of mine it has been forgiven. If you continue reading through this psalm, you see verse 13 where he says this word then. Uh, I don't know if you've ever really studied much about the Bible, but there are certain transition words that whenever you see them, I feel like you should circle them. One of them is if. If you ever see the word if in the Bible, pay attention. Or and. Or the word but. Or the word then. Not B-U-T-T, Shane. B U T whenever you see certain words, there are these beautiful transitions. And he says the word then. He says, if you show me mercy, then I will teach transgressors. But he's not kind of making this, uh, this kind of uh, trade, like if you're like me when you were in school, God, if you allow me to get an A, I promise I'll study for the next test. It's not one of those, like, let's make a deal situations. What you see is he's saying, God, if you forgive me, there's going to be a very natural result. And the natural result is that I will not be able to contain what, what I have experienced. If I truly feel that this evil, evil heart, I've been forgiven, that it's been paid in full by the person of Jesus, when I fully grasp that and understand that the natural result is he who has been forgiven much loves much, I won't be able to contain it. And he goes on, he says, I will sing it, my mouth will declare it. And then he speaks of another natural thing that would happen is, I see that I'm sinful, you show me your mercy, then I teach transgressors, and then he continues on, he says, and sinners will return to you. When those who follow the Lord have been forgiven and know it and feel it, and they've experienced that, and they begin to live that out, people see it, and it changes lives. Um, Our kids, Tristan and Shane, they have some nicknames for Sarah and I. One of them is Buzzkiller, and one of them is Fun Sponge. I don't know which is which. I think I'm probably the Fun Sponge, because I... But it's really easy to to feel like God is like that. God doesn't want anybody to have fun. God doesn't want anybody to have joy. He just wants to give rules, 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 rules. That's who God is. And we can present that by the way that we live. But there's something beautiful that happens when we've received so much mercy that it spills out and we can't keep our mouth shut about it and we teach other people that, the thing that happens is that sinners see something different. They don't see as a, a God who's the fun sponge. They see a God who's loving and gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. A natural result of repentance is people see God totally different. Last week, We talked about confession, and confession is profoundly important. And Luke went further in than than just in confession, but really confession starts the train, but repentance is really the beautiful thing. And what we see with David in this text is what repentance really is, it's asking God for mercy. It's us laying bare before God through our confession. Acknowledging his position, acknowledging our hearts. And that's us getting to a point where we only want one thing, and it's to be right with God. And then it's also us accepting his payment. I want to ask you a couple questions to, to leave here with. Have you ever gotten to a point where you've realized that something was off in your heart? And you said, I need this to be fixed. And you turn to Jesus for him to be the one who fixes it. When that happens in your life, if it has, that is when people say the word, you've been born again or you've been saved. That's what they mean. You enter into a relationship with Jesus. So I start with, have you ever accepted that? Have you ever repented? Are you in the midst of a cover-up right now? In a room this size, I feel very certain that there are people here who you're struggling with something that you don't want anybody to know. Or maybe you allowed one person to know, but that's it. Or maybe two people. But, but in general, you are living with a mask covering up what it is that is going on. Are you in a position that you, whether you're actively doing it, consciously doing it, or maybe subconsciously doing it, are you isolating yourself from other people because you don't want people to know? I I say as your brother and as your friend, as someone who's been there, it is a dangerous place to be. Are you in a position where you really do want one thing? You want to be right with the Lord, and you want accountability, and you want to go deeper, but maybe you don't have that right now. I think there are people all across this room that would be willing to be open, listening ear. But we also, we do house church here. We talk about it fairly regularly and not to try to, like, make people feel bad about not being a part of one or anything like that, but because we want to provide these environments where that can happen. So we want there to be this environment where you can have accountability. You can have people who, who confront you. You may be like, well, I want that, but man, I don't want that. But that's why we do house churches. And we're actually in this situation where we we were down to two house churches and we're multiplying out and we have at least three and maybe there'll be more soon, but that's why we do it. We want there to be these environments where people can go deeper in their relationship with the Lord, where they can have people who will challenge them and keep them accountable, where we don't have to live in secret and hypocrisy, but we can be open and real before a people who will love us and accept us and will confess their sin as well. Um, Our house church this past week, we had this time where I just simply asked, we had a group of guys, it was just guys time, and those girls had girl time, and I asked the guys, I said, is there something that you're struggling with right now? And it was beautiful. It it was ugly, because we're all ugly, but it was beautiful that we just were able to share what was going on, bring it to light and pray over each other. I think it's a profoundly important thing for us to have as a life, in the life of a believer if we're going to continue growing in our relationship with the Lord. And I think part of repentance really is being open. It is that confession. It's part of repentance. The thing that's so weird about last week's message and this week's message, you can't have repentance without confession. and You can't have true confession without repentance. They work so beautifully together. And maybe one more thing. Maybe, let me ask you a question. Would you say, yes, I I have a relationship with the Lord. Yes, I have repented. But if I'm open, if I'm real, if I'm honest, God is not the one thing I really want right now. I've been there. And it does no good to just live in that, but to begin to confess that. To have brothers and sisters read scripture over you, pray for you. Psalm 51, you see beautiful picture of repentance. And I want to end with one verse that overwhelms the whole thing of what repentance is. It's verse 10. And this will be our prayer, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Amen.